So I'm so excited to have what I really feel like is, you know, an amazing, awesome human being. He is a Singaporean-born androgynous, genderless model, and he's not just a pretty face. He actually is super smart. Um, he's an advocate for social justice, and he is just uh, such an inspiration to everyone out there who I think who is out of the box, who is non-traditional. So uh, really excited to have you here, Victor. Great, thank you, Liling, for the introduction. Yeah, so really excited to have you here. So, can you tell us what you do? Well, so um, I always I always make a joke to the people that I, that know me that I have um, two identities, right? Because it's, essentially, I consider myself having two full time jobs, and then I specialize um, in behavior health, but mostly around substance use disorder issues and. It's something that I'm very passionate about, and I work for one of the largest nonprofit organization in um, a multi-social service organization in the United States, and so that's the social aspects of it. And then beyond that, about I want to say I keep thinking it's three years ago, but I think it's four years ago that without any um, intentional plan, I accidentally started modeling as an androgynous model, and then I uh, not to sound too cliche, but then the rest is his history and so far it has been working out really well and whenever I can I try to integrate what I do through modeling with uh, social work, social justice and I use this term I call fashion integration and it's because if you are follow someone that is in healthcare industry you will hear the term healthcare integration a lot and that what that means is integrating primary care and behavior healthcare uh, together and to me, since I'm also in the behavior health world and the modeling world, I just feel that I can use my platform in the artistry and modeling platform to promote social work, which is what I call it fashion integration. I love that. So you have, you know, such an interesting background. So let's just start from the beginning. Excuse me, beginning. Um, so, you know, you were actually born in Southeast Asia, and, you know, I was reading some of your other interviews. I was just amazed at how much you have been through. Um, but I want you to, you know, tell, tell your own story. So what was it like um, just growing up for you? Um, I want to say that, um, so originally I'm from Singapore. I want to say that a lot of what I, I want to consider myself very successful, but I would say that part of my success today really attributes to my identity as a Singaporean. And people who have been, Singapore is known for being very clean, very strict, but that I think, I say part of my success owns to my upbringing as a Singaporean is because I think that um, I am a tremendous, extremely disciplined individual, and that has to do with the society that I grew up in. And then in general, not to stereotype, but in general, Singaporeans are very driven. So I think that really helps me to um, be successful. And so that has to do, do with my up, up, uh, growing up in Singapore. And coming to Seattle, I've lived here for a while now, and it's also one of those things that was not, that was not planned. I never think that I would stay here for such a long time. But then when I first came to Seattle, the intention is really to uh, pursue a degree and further my education. And at that time, I didn't really think about I want to specialize in um, social work or to do things that is around substance use disorder issues or behavior health. And to make a long story short is that 
in the state of Washington where I live now, at, um, I want to say that is there still a shortage of certified chemical dependency professionals, especially if you're a person of color or Asian? And I'm one of the very few individuals that was certified by the state Department of Health as a chemical dependency professional. I went into the field, um, not exactly sure that's what I want to do, but I feel very compelled as an Asian immigrant that since there isn't is a workforce shortage and it's something that is needed in our community and no no one is really certified to do that at that time. So I went from trying to see whether I can do something and then developing a passion into it. Then that's how I started doing social work and specialized in commonly known as addiction, but the proper term right now is substance use disorder. That's why I kept saying substance use disorder. And then with Modeling, even when I was in Singapore, I had already done some modeling and I was pretty fortunate that, um, and of all places, I remember that I was, uh, it, it was a shopping mall and then it was, a, it was pretty close to a bookstore. That's how I kind of, I was scouted and I, I thought that it was, a, I thought of it more as a joke at that time because I'm a pretty perfect shop person, still am. But I was lucky to have already done um, modeling in Singapore. But when I moved to the U.S., it's not something that I think I will do again. But I always, uh, I always had a passion. Uh, in, I, I want to say that once I set my mind to do something, I will give it 110%. I will never start doing something uh, to do something that I'm not passionate about. So once I make up my mind, okay, that's something I want to pursue, whether it's in social work, or modeling, I will do my, I don't think I can be the best, but I'll do my best to try to be the best. That's amazing. So you have like a very interesting story where, you know, one side is social work and the other side is modeling. So what got you, let's just take this, I guess, in two questions. So, um, what, what made you get started in social justice? You know, were you always passionate about it? Did something like happen that made you realize that the importance of it? Like what was your inspiration to, to start on that project? Mm, I want to say that, uh, so I grew up, I, when I was living in Singapore, I went through a, a, a phase of my childhood that I, we were, my family was very poor, so I grew up in poverty. And then I was very fortunate that um, over time I was able to gradually move into, I'm going to say considered uh, a better uh, living status in Singapore. So, but even despite that, I, re I recognized that um, because I had that experience as a, uh, living in po poverty or, or growing up poor, it makes me want to, it makes me appreciate life more. And then as somebody who then immigrated to uh, the United States, I want to say that when I live in Singapore, I don't experience things like discrimination that, that much, but... Um, Maybe it's because it's a different society and um, then also being Southeast Asian and Chinese, it's, I don't want to say that we are more elite, but in, in Singapore, it's considered a more elite class. So I never had that uh, issue. But then when I first came to the United States, I, re I recognized um, that I, I wouldn't say that I feel discriminated, but then even though, so for people who do not know, English is actually the native language of Singaporeans. So, but to Americans, um, they were very confused that I can speak fluent English, even though I have this funny accent. 
but I have been told that it had changed over the years since I lived here. But there was this assumption about um, if you are from Asia, if you are from Asia, then you, in this country, I'm talking about U.S., you may be perceived as somebody that is um, uh, that your English immediately they will think that you have limited English proficiency oftentimes. And then there will also be this assumption that um, you are a more uh, quiet or passive person, not as articulate. And then it's somehow, and I begin to see things among um, the, my, the, my friends and the Asian community here that navigations in the system, in the US system, whether it's assessing healthcare or other social services, there are more systematic barriers and institutional barriers. And that makes me feel that maybe that's something that I can do. But then, and also being gay, I always think that if you're a gay person, and then if you are Asian, in, in some aspect that, uh, in falling into these two categories, I really put myself in a higher, increased the probability of being discriminated against. And, then I always say that I am discriminated twice, right? Because of both identity. And what I learned though, it's then I want to be able to do something about it. And then um, I then develop, I, I think I become more resilient and then figure out what is it that I can do, not just for myself, but for the community around me and not necessarily just Asian community, but communities who are underserved then what is it that I can do as an advocate using uh, whether it's my social work platform or modeling platform to create a message, which is why I think that because of the visibility that I have, it is very important to be a good role model because I think that big people do, uh, some people, that they, they will be able to see what I do and then I want to make sure that I always present a very positive image and then I know that um, I'm very fortunate to be able to, be, to use this endogenous uh, modern platform, which I do not take for granted, which is why I'm very con conscious about uh, how I brand myself and what opportunities can I bring to use it as a vehicle to advocate for social justice. So I want to say that it's coming from my own growing up experience, being discriminated, get, uh, facing discrimination when I live here, and then seeing the discrimination happen, happening within the Asian community, immigrants and refugees and LGBTQ, and then figuring out that what is it that I can do um, in a sense to address health disparity. And then again, it's not possible to do anything just uh, by myself, then it's always a community to get uh, collective efforts and collaborative partnerships that help to address those issues. I love that you literally take things that would break other normal human beings and like literally turn that into the thing that you fight for. You know, we're having this chat before and you said, I check off all the boxes, you know, LGBT, Asian, and um, um, like just androgynous model, you kind of like just you embrace it all. So I love that fact about you. And one thing you brought something on was, you know, fashion and you use it as a platform and you have a very, very active Instagram. And you told me some very interesting things about just like you know, people you happen uh, by chance mm -hmm. to meet. And I do think that you are very conscious, you know, putting yourself in those situations. But can you give us like some ways that you use your platform to advance your cause? Um, so 
Well, I, I want to say that when I first started um, modeling, then I didn't, since it was an accidental situation when I was mistaken as female, that's how I started, which, which then I know that when I uh, was growing up, my, fam my facial features has always been more feminine anyway. And so it didn't really bother me. But then if you take that into consideration, it can also be something that can be discriminated against. But then when I recognize that, um, I, I believe in telling anything that is negative, not necessarily negative, but something that maybe elements that can work against me to become something positive. So what I recognized within the first six months when I started um, androgynous modeling, I actually didn't call it androgynous modeling when I started, I call it genderless modeling. And the, the short story of that is because I used to have a very difficult time pronouncing androgynous. So when people <laughs> ask me, I just, that's so funny. Then I just say genderless, and then <laughs> oh, that's actually really cool. So you, you then now I'm just going to ask because it's easier to for people to understand androgynous versus genderless. But I developed the identity. But once I recognize that I can actually use uh, to me modeling, at, whether it's a uh, it's on the runway or whether it's a uh, photo shoots, I see it as an artistry where I use, um, where I use images or use that um, artistry to, con to do storytelling, essentially. So conveying a story through the images or through what I do on, on the runway. And some of the things that I can, I think I'm able to do is that if there are specific uh, des designs that I endorse, sometimes I will ask them for permission that can I use your, uh, when I model this jewelry or this campaign, can it be tied to something that is related to domestic violence or can it be something that can help to raise awareness for anti-LGBTQ bullying or sometimes it's even things that is related to climate change. So I'm very intentional about it. Because, and then the other thing I think is helpful that people who have hired me for uh, modeling, they know that I'm, I'm known for really trying to integrate fashion along with non-profit work. So I developed, which is why I'm very conscious about not having, uh, about my own branding, which I think is important um, because I don't want, the, the last thing I want is for somebody to see me in, on social media or different um, public platform that I'm presenting something that is negative. And then it helps that, that I'm able to, I, I, I'm also at the point that I am very selective about what I want to do. And then people who know me also know that I'm that model who will really try to use a fashion show or a photo shoot or use my own social media platform to promote things that I find meaningful to support. And th there are so many health disparities issues. Yeah. Yeah. So I do love that, and I think um, I think the audience. You didn't tell your story. So we. I know your story, but can you tell us how you accidentally got into androgynous modeling? I think it's a yeah. Sure. Story. So, so the, again, the short story will be, I I was just hanging out at a at a photo shoot. I was just hanging out at a photo shoot with another female model friend they actually needed two female models at the time. And then, well, I believe we waited for about 30 minutes and somehow the other female model did not show up for the shoot. And the crew saw me and then they just tell me that you're, you're, 
your body is very proportionate and can you do this? So I just say, sure, since I had already done modeling before, but, um, but there is a moment that when I changed, they were pretty, uh, it, they were pretty shocked. Oh my God, you are a boy that we just assume that you're not. And of course to me, I just tell, I just thought, is that a problem? Then they just tell, I just I don't want to do this. But then they just thought that it was very interesting. And I think the first few months, I actually did not let people in the industry know that I had already done professional modeling back in Asia. So to them, it was this perception that, okay, here is this person, here's this boy who actually photographs like a girl, but it's a fresh face, and at the same time, that is so experienced and refined, it's just impossible. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, but then it's because I already had that experience and I had done it before, even though I didn't do it for a long. So it works to my advantage. And then beyond that, I considered myself some, uh, somebody that is fairly articulate. So when I go for casting or audition, I started the brand really well. And there are many, many more beautiful and pretty faces. And sometimes it comes down to the personality of the person who is most prepared. And whether it's social work or modeling, I believe that um, when someone is given an opportunity, even if you have to just be prepared for the moment. And even if you don't have the, if you're not completely prepared, you don't have the training, but you offer an assignment, sometimes people hesitate to take it because they feel, okay, I and not competent enough. And I always tell myself and the people that uh, I mentor now that if you're presented an assignment and opportunity, take it, even if you're not 100% aware of what you can do because you can always learn, you can always yeah, yeah. adapt. And sometimes people say that opportunity, uh, the opportunities will come again, but, um, but it may never come back. Yeah, that's fascinating. I just love your story because it just goes to show like you can just go with the flow. Actually, when I was 12 years old, I had a bullshit cut. And, you know, when I mm -hmm. went to the office, um, and obviously I was like a 12 year old girl, so it's like a totally different mm -hmm. thing. And then the counselor just referred me to a, as a guy. So I was just like mm -hmm. so offended. <laughs> you know, I was just so like, but you were totally opposite. So I'm just curious, like, when, um, do, do you just like always go with a flow? You know, did you feel at all like awkward when they were shocked? Like what was going through your um, mind at that time? I think it was, it's interesting. I, I, to, to me, it's uh, because I have always been mistaken as a girl. And then, so it wasn't that shocking to me. I think what was more, uh, and I, I, uh, and I, as I said earlier, that I would turn things that may work against me into something positive. And then I figured out that since my physical, uh, my physics and my physical appearance is not something that I can change, then what is it that I can do with uh, it to make it something that, um, to, to work to my own advantage, essentially. And then I would say that when people, and oftentimes, when people, if, if it's sometime, if it's the first time going for a casting or somebody that's hiring me for the very first time, I'm always very clear about my gender. I always tell them that uh, my name is Victor. And then sometimes, uh, the, the, there were a few occasions that they will start asking me how to spell the name because they think it's some kind of exotic spelling for a female <laughs> name. And I always think that, 
it's quite fascinating. How would else would you spell Victor? You know? But in, in that sense, that uh, I think being authentic and clear about my gender has helped me because then people, people who want to hire me for different things, uh, whether it's a social worker or in modeling, sometimes they may not know my name, but they will know that there is this very small but Asian and Georgia model that lives in Seattle and uh, photograph like a girl, but it's not. <laughs> and at least at this time, I believe I'm the only one. And so they were, it, so their branding becomes something that is very consistent and something that I'm known for. And I just believe that it's not, if it's not something that I can change, then I, I embrace it. That's such an amazing and healthy mindset to have. And so, you know, you are um, LGBT, um, Asian, immigrant. Um, so what were some of, like, I think the mental blocks you had to overcome when you came from Singapore to the U.S. or maybe just in general? Mm, I think one thing that I want to say is that uh, when I tell people this today, they would not believe me because I used to be a very shy, introvert person. And I still see myself as a, a more introverted person. But, in, but people who know me, they just tell me that it's impossible because you appear to be so outgoing and um, you, exert, you just exhibit this very vibrant energy. So I want to say that it, um, maybe we can call it a simulation. So when, in, a, in a U.S. settings classroom when I was going to school, Oftentimes, Asians in general, or people of color, we are not the one who raise our hand or sustain things. We are more quiet. And then, but I learned very quickly that in order to have that disability, I need to do something about it. And then I would say that, <laughs> I don't want to say I forced myself, but I learned how to be able to um, have a voice and then learn how to articulate myself. So over time, that have changed. So that is one thing that I think grew, uh, living in the U.S. had definitely made me a more outspoken person. And then beyond that, if we're just talking about social work, I started doing, uh, I started providing direct services. So it's mostly just um, counseling to uh, youth. But then I'm, I am very fortunate that I have, very, I have different mentors in my life that guide me on what I need to do. And then I understand from a mentor that doing, providing direct services, I think is a wonderful thing, but it has a, a more micro level impact. So for instance, maybe in a month, I can help 50 people. But in order to have a larger impact, if I want to advocate for policy, or I want to do more systematic uh, changes uh, along again with collaborative partnership, I need to move into an administrator position so I can have a more macro level impact, then I recognize that in order to do that, then I have to be strategic about it. And the same thing about modeling, then I, I recognize that, I, again, I have things that work against me. <laughs> I'm not that tall, but I photograph tall. And then I need to figure out, so what is it that I can do to distinguish myself from other people? Then I figure out my brand, my genderless branding, and a positive image, integrating it with, fashion and so I, I think with those things that I'm, I'm doing it definitely helped me to become a more resilient more determined person and it definitely has helped me um, to get to the stage that I am today 
And the other thing that I, I'm a firm believer of, uh, kindness may not always be get kindness, but be kind anyway. And it's because it's not so much about karma. I don't believe so much about karma. I believe more about, um, you, you just give out this authentic and kind energy and it will always, whether it, I, it comes back or not to me is secondary, but it helps to create a more cohesive and positive environment. I love that. That's great. So one thing is that, you know, we, we, we met through Perpetua and like, it just seems like your network is so diverse and so different. And you told me a few stories about how you just like randomly meet amazing people. Mm -hmm. So can you share some tips on people who are maybe newcomers, you know, they don't know how to network or they were never taught how to, you know, um, go to conferences, you know, talk to strangers. What kind mm -hmm. of advice would you give them? Um, I think if it's coming to networking, uh, cr creating a strong social network. The key to me is um, always be authentic, be, be who you are. Do not try to change who you are in order to network. Because if uh, somebody is not authentic or you are trying to put on a persona, then uh, it, somebody, it, it will be, uh, somebody will see that through eventually. And then I would say that in a network setting, then a good idea maybe if you are going to a conference or a large group event, just have this idea of trying to meet one new person. I think that will help. <laughs> to yeah, yeah, definitely. Try to meet that one new person. And then the other thing is that um, sometimes we, we have this assumption that um, people are not willing to help, people are not as nice, people are not as genuine. But to, your, to my surprise, oftentimes that when we are authentic and we, and we ask and do not be afraid to um, make the first move and say hello and then always, um, I think being, again being authentic and friendly is key and the, the other thing that I believe too is that um, if, you are, if you are trying to at a networking event, whether it's for work or in a social setting, being able to be prompt and being able to follow through about uh, what you say on what somebody wants you to do, that will help tremendously. Yeah, definitely. That's great. So I feel like you literally break all the rules, like in terms of like, you know, what people expect of, um, I guess what, uh, you know, on paper, what, uh, what we label ourselves as. So did you ever have any like fear or like, um, just in terms of like safety? Or did you ever feel scared for being who you are? Or were you just always like, I'm just going to be who I am no matter what. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. I want to say that, again, growing in Singapore, I, I, I don't want to say that I, I was, um, th there were definitely some bullying experience that I experienced when I was in Singapore, but nothing too extreme, which was good. And even when I um, first lived here through different employment, I would say, I, I don't want to say it's a bully thing because sometimes, People would assume that, again, you're Asian, uh, being Asian, people would assume that uh, I'm looking really young. And at that time, I was really young. And I'm still looking very young. And then looking very young and being Asian, then there is this assumption that um, I'm less intelligent or less articulate or less competent. So those are all things that, um, again, those are all just assumptions and negative things that work against me. So I then, I have to figure out, okay, so what is it that, um, I can do to break those assumptions and having been bullied before and then I don't really 
then I think that I'm fortunate enough to get to the stage where I am today, then I am never overly conscious about uh, safety and, and, and things like that. Because in general, uh, despite my small love to sex, I see myself as a very strong um, emotional caution. I have a very strong EQ and I'm not afraid of taking risks. I'm not afraid um, of things. And then plus, <laughs> I in, I'm not trying to provoke any issues. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I, I never see that as a major um, issue. One thing that I learned too is sometimes if I'm, whether it's me or another person, if it's, if it's an unsafe situation, then if I experience something that is unsafe, sometimes the best thing to do is just to walk away from that situation. Yeah, that's great advice. So can you share with us, like, what are some of your, like, your favorite projects that you've worked on this far? Mm, there are, I want to say that there are definitely many <laughs> projects that I like, I enjoy doing, but there is one particular one that is a, uh, there is a brand, it's, uh, it's called JNBY. So it stands for Just Naturally Be Yourself. And these days, if you buy any clothing, you will see that uh, it's oftentimes made in China, right? What is not made in China? <laughs> JNBY is a very unique brand. It is actually designed in China, but made in Europe. So it's something very unique. And I was very fortunate um, about, I can't remember, maybe it's about two years ago, I was at a social networking event and just being myself and then uh, I had no intention of trying to go for the casting at this social networking brand event but I was very fortunate to meet one, uh, one, one of the magazine editor at that event and JMBY was just getting ready to open. I believe it's the second store in the United States in Seattle, Washington and then they saw me. I still remember the sweater I wore. I wore a sweater with French fries and tomatoes on it and with just a baseball cap and jeans. And then the next thing I know that the following day I got a phone call and then followed by email and then they said that we would like to feature you in JMBY. And honestly, I had no idea what is JMBY, what it stands for and what it is. So I researched it and Googled it. And it was what, and I like the project a lot. It's because I just like the brand. Just naturally be yourself, be who you are. So that's one, and it is a pretty um, great opportunity. And I just love the entire um, editorial series that I, I did. But beyond that, when people, I get asked this question a lot, what are some of my favorite projects? I always say that um, I, I I think to be con I, co consistently, my answer has always been. <clears throat> About every single one is because I see every project, whether it's a fashion project or a social work project that I am able to do, it may be the last one because you never know. So it may be the last one. So I believe in really putting 110% in doing what I do. And then it, because the reality is that uh, I know that what I'm able to do to now it's not something that can, I can do forever. So I treat every opportunity or every assignment as the last one. You're just so smart. I just, I just <laughs> love how insightful you are. So let's switch a little bit more fun questions. So since you do photograph female, um, I'm just asking this for my own selfish purposes as well. Like mm -hmm. what kind of advice would you give to people who always say, oh my God, I look so horrible on photos. 
um, how, how, what kind of advice would you give to people to take better photos? To take better photos. Hmm. So I think, <laughs> so I would say that, um, so I, one thing that as a, as a model, I, I would say that you have to really understand your own uh, facial features, facial features a lot, and then know your angles about um, what is the best angle that you have when it comes to taking photograph. And then lighting to me is key. Then uh, it's ideally whenever the light is casting on your face, that is the it will give you the best exposure on the face. And understanding your own body language, and then that will help to uh, take better photos. And then the other thing that I think too is that um, I am a firm believer of um, having a balance of mind, body, spirits. So if you have all three elements, mind, body, spirits in check, then uh, beauty comes from within, I believe. Then it will just radiate this uh, like beauty inside and out. Yeah, that's definitely great advice. So um, I do want to get your point on, you know, uh, androgyny as a concept, you know, because I grew up in China and I think mm -hmm. it would not be weird to see like women, you know, with short hair, you know, walking around and like guys holding hands with each other. It's not as... Um, taboo, I guess. So, you know, coming from both East and Western cultures, what are your thoughts on, you know, gender identity um, in, in general? Well, I think that it's already 2017, right? That's true, that's true. So I, I believe that, um, to me, gender is fluid, right? So it can change, it can have different stages, different progress. And I truly believe that the the gender identity in the future will be gender neutral. There shouldn't be, it shouldn't be, uh, this is for male, this is for female, or a man should have short hair, a woman should have long hair. And because those are just things that, uh, those are just labels that society creates. Right? So I think there will be a paradigm change in the future that things will be gender neutral in a sense. And, it, to a certain degree, we are really beginning to see that more and more. You are seeing more and more laborers, designers making clothing that are gender neutral. They don't even distinguish that this is the female department, this is the male department. And I think that is great. So to me, it's, it's a fluid identity. It is a neutral identity. And then whether a person is female or male, it, in our um, in our body, that there are always this, the two elements of what we call the yin and yang element. It's always there anyway. And so to me, it's, um, again, how to just um, navigate through that fluid identity. Yeah, that's great. I just wanted to hear your take on that. So um, what advice would you give to immigrants who want to start their own business or their projects in a new country? Well, I would just say that... Um, Sometimes, I don't know whether people still say that, especially the current administration, but people may see the U.S. as the land of dreams. And I just had this conversation with a friend recently, and I just say that uh, not necessarily just U.S. is the land of dreams. Wherever you go, even if there are opportunities and you want to start a business, you want to be an entrepreneur, then I would say that the key is you have to be driven, and you have to be willing to work hard and you have to be able to be, you have to be ambitious and then not afraid to take risks. And I think those are 
the key elements. And then oftentimes, I think we are so uh, contented with the situation that we, we are in, and then we are afraid to take risks. And then in the Chinese saying, then we have this, we say weighty, right? So in time of danger come opportunity. So I just think that we just have to um, not worry too much and then just do it anyway, which is why I said earlier that when you're given an opportunity, even if not 100% prepared, take it anyway, and then try to learn and be smart about it. And then find somebody that is, if somebody, if the business that, that you want to start, you know somebody who is extremely good at it, then find that person, meet that person, then get advice from the person. And then once you accomplish what you can do, then share resources, because then it will only build a stronger network. Because I think the, other, the mistake that I think people often make is that when a, a successful person can only become more successful if you mentor and help another person and not to hold that knowledge, which is what I believe in cultivation. Yeah. That's so good. I love that. So how can we, you know, get in touch with you? How can we continue the conversation? Where can we find you online? Well, so if you, um, so I, I use social media a lot because I think it's, uh, it's twofold. One is that it really helps me um, to talk about behavior health, social justice, equity issues, and it also helps me obviously with modeling. So if you are interested to learn more about me, you can just look me up on Facebook and then my Facebook um, the, the modeling name I use from Facebook, Facebook is Victoria Victor. So essentially, I just reverse the name of the movie from Victor, Victoria to Victoria Victor. And then for Instagram, the hashtag is iStyle for life. So it's I-T-Y-L-E, the number four, L-I-F-E. Awesome. So thank you so much for this really insightful interview. I really think that you're one of the people who's overcome like the most societal labels and turn <laughs> all that, you know, difficulty into your opportunity. So thank you so much, Victor, for being on this show and hope to have you in many episodes to come. Yes, thank you.